raised in a Christian church. My dad, if you know uh, Phil Johnson, my dad was Phil Johnson's dad's Sunday school teacher. So he's uh, uh, very steeped in from Wichita, Kansas, and Tulsa uh, in the faith. He was a Bible teacher for many years. And so I grew up as a Christian uh, in a Christian household, not being a Christian myself, thinking I was. When I was five years old, I wanted to be a pastor. I told my mom and dad, I think God wants me to be a pastor, and so they gave me a King James Bible that I could not read, and, uh, and I thought that's who I was. I was going to be uh, a Christian pastor. The first letters I remember printing when you're learning how to write was, I am a Christian, and yet the truth was, um, I didn't know it, that I wasn't one for many, many years. It wasn't until uh, my college years where I started to chase, uh, almost like Solomon, every single uh, wine, women, and, and not wisdom. Everything else uh, I would pursue. And so my life turned, it up, uh, turned up being um, really devastating. I came to California to pursue acting because I thought, well, maybe God didn't want me to be a, a preacher after all. Maybe he just wanted me, that I was confused. The person up front is the person I wanted to be and who's up front but an actor. And so I came to California against the wishes of my dad, though he loved me, and started to pursue acting. And I did that for 10 years. And in the pursuit of doing that, um, got involved in New Age mysticism, trying to understand other characters uh, that I would play and trying to empathize with them and their worldview. So I started to explore through a series of events um, what it would be like to meditate. I used to meditate two hours a day, every day, to try to have out-of-body experiences. I was very devout in my spirituality. Uh, I thought Jesus was an ascended master, but so was Buddha and Confucius. And, and so that was the focus of my life. Until, by God's grace, um, I had an uh, incident where there was a young woman that wanted to marry me, and I was way too immature to be married. I uh, didn't want to do that, so she married somebody else. <laughs> when she married somebody else, uh, I decided that that would be the night that I would uh, get in a fight with a uh, tequila bottle. And uh, the tequila bottle won, and I was pulled over at the 405 freeway, drunk driving, didn't even know I was in a car, um, my Jeep was pulled over, and I woke up in a, in, a, in a jail cell wondering why God had let me live, because I didn't even know where I was. I didn't even remember that night uh, at all. Well, I don't know if you know this, but if you, if you have a certain amount of blood alcohol in your uh, veins, they take you to AA, and so I had to do 18 AA meetings. And during that time, when I'm going through these meetings, and I hated AA, I thought it was just disgusting, I thought the coffee was bad, and these guys are all losers, you know, I'm the only winner there, <laughs> and these guys are all losers, and I'm thinking, wow. Uh, but at, at the end of those meetings, uh, for some reason, I don't know if they still do this today, but they would pray the Lord's Prayer, and all the guys would hold hands, and so, Our Father, which art in heaven, and I knew that from growing up. And so, for some reason, the Lord planted it in my mind, I, I need to go back to the Bible, and I didn't have a Bible, so I went and bought a Bible, and I started to read it on the bus because I couldn't drive. My license was suspended. And day in and day out, um, I read only the, the red part. Yeah, I, I didn't trust anything else in the Bible except, you know, if you have a red version of the Bible where only the words of Jesus are in the red. And so I would only read the words of Jesus every single day and just kept trying to figure out what's going on in my life. Um, I was teaching acting, as Lance said. Uh, I had been teaching acting. Nowadays, that was 30 years ago, so I've been doing it for 30 years. But at that time, uh, my whole life seemed very uh, jeopardized. Um, So here I am in the midst of all this, and I know this is going to sound so quirky, but I I wanted to get my life straight, get it cleaned out, and I thought I might start with my closet. 
And so I started cleaning out my closet. And in the midst of my closet, I found an old army uniform with the medals on it that I had borrowed from a friend of mine who was a bartender because I used to bartend. I'm the, only, I'm the only pastor at Grace Church that can read a wine menu. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of odd. <laughs> no, that's, that's, you know, it's actually true, I think. But um, so... Um, as I'm going through, I found this uniform that a guy that I had bartended with gave to me because I wanted to have my picture taken uh, to look like a military guy because I used to go out for soldiers and cops and stuff like that when I was pursuing acting. And so I felt really bad. I felt like it was bad karma. I should give this back to him. And uh, not knowing, of course, that karma was uh, idiocy. And so I find this guy. I called him up. Uh, he wasn't at the restaurant anymore. In the meantime, he'd gotten married and all these different... I've never tried to find anybody in my life, but I found this guy. And he said, why don't we get back together, and we'll go to the restaurant we used to bartend at, and, uh, you know, you can give me my shirt back, and we'll catch up, which I thought was code for, let's get drunk. And I thought, sure, I'm on. So I went there, even though I had to take a bus to get there because of my drunk driving so I could get drunk. And, uh, it's, you know, the, when, when you're in sin, you're just brilliant. There's just a lot of smart things. And um, he, he ordered a nice tea, such a simple little thing. And I go, what, what, what's that? I go, oh, please don't be an alcoholic because this is going to ruin my whole night if you are. And he said, no, it's because of my faith. And I said, What's that? what does that mean? He then explained for over two hours the gospel to me. Um, I had never heard the gospel. My mother tells me I had because she was crying when I ended up coming to Christ. She said, no, but you, you are saved. You, you've been a Christian. I said, no, Mom, I wasn't. I wasn't. So he explains the whole gospel to me. I didn't like it. I, I, he told me my dog wasn't going to heaven. And I thought, well, that's idiocy. Then. I'm not, you know, that's, that's insane. Uh, and so I, I've always been open my whole life. And so for whatever reason, he said, you know, if you want to know more, come and ask me. And I said, well, you know, I'll meet with you one more time. So I went to his house, met his wife. He explained the gospel to me again. And I remember we were walking out to my car. And he said, he said, Tommy, I... I don't think, he goes, I know you're searching, but you're not saved. And for some reason, that just really struck me. That just really made me mad. And I said, that's good. You don't have to come back and talk to me. And I don't have to come back and talk to you. It's over. We're done. You know, thanks, but no thanks. A week later, and I don't know how he got my address to this day. I, we're still very good friends. He ended up uh, being one of my dearest friends. Um, he found my address, and in the, in the mail, he sent me the Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. If you haven't read that book, you need to read that book because it's an amazing book about what does it mean to follow Christ. That's the subtitle. So I don't even know why I did it. I have no idea. So I remember reading the gospel according to Jesus while I was drinking wine. <laughs> so you would think that's such a contradiction, but here I am trying to learn about the Bible and still entrapped in my, my sin. And probably halfway through that book, the Lord opened my eyes, and I started to realize, oh my goodness, this is true, and I am not saved, and I am doomed, and Jesus is real. All of that flooded my mind. So I started to go back then and compare what he said with what the Bible was saying, and I was going through, and this is, again, not motivated by anyone, but just the Holy Spirit working in me, and probably a month of just going over it and going over it and, and praying, and, and not praying really to God, but just praying that this would go away, just praying, hoping that somehow, it's like I knew that Jesus was true, and I knew he was my creator, and I understood just from what was clear in scripture that I had to come to Christ because there was no option, but I didn't want to. I was holding out as long as I possibly could so I could still indulge in my sin. 
Then one day, and I, I remember it was in November. I don't remember the day, but I remember it was in November because November is always my Thanksgiving uh, month. Um, I was in my room uh, with no motivation other than the Word of God on my life, and I went to my knees, and I just cried out for the Lord Jesus to forgive me for my entire life, for everything that I'd ever done, for everything I'd ever been involved with, for my thinking, for rejecting Him as the Son of God, not knowing that He was God the Son. And, you know, this is, you know, I'm not trying to be experiential or anything, but when I did that, when I was confessing and just crying my whole life out before Him, there was a literal weight of burden lifted from me. And I, for some reason, I understood I was saved, I was his, I belonged to him. Um, I called the guy that, you know, gave me the book immediately. I said, Dean, I, I just got saved. I just repented and asked Jesus to forgive me for my sins. And he said, okay, now you got to go find a church. And uh, he was such a tactful guy. And... Uh, <laughs> And I said, well, what do I look for? He goes, you need to look for a church that teaches the Bible. And this is interesting because he goes to Grace Community Church, and he didn't tell me to go to Grace, which I think is just a fascinating thing. In fact, I remember when he was explaining the gospel to me, he didn't even, he never told me anything about, for instance, he explained the gospel to me, and I said, well, then how do you get saved? He goes, you can't save yourself. And I go, well, then that's stupid. And and he goes, you can't do anything. And I go, well, what? So he was really interesting in the way he presented the gospel to me. He told me that this was the truth. And, but he didn't tell me that I had to plead. He didn't tell me that I would have to go before God and ask him to save me. So at the same way, when he uh, gave me the instruction, I went all through Santa Monica, Venice. I lived in Culver City. And unbeknownst to myself, I was looking for a preacher that explained the Bible like the guy who wrote the book explained the Bible. I didn't know that's what I was looking for, but it was. So I heard a lot of good preachers, and they were all very good, you know, uh, kind of oratory guys. But I wasn't hearing what I needed to hear, which was explanation of the text. And so eventually he called me up and said, how's your search going? I go, I haven't found anybody. It's been a month. He goes, well, come to our church. It's Grace Community Church. And I said, that's like 20 miles away. He goes, well, you know, that guy that wrote the book, John MacArthur, is our pastor. And I'm going, why didn't you tell me that? I mean, what, what's your, how do you disciple people? And he goes, well, speaking of discipleship, he goes, who's discipling you? And I said, no one. He goes, okay, well, I'll disciple you. And so I'm so susceptible so um, I started to go to Grace Community Church. John MacArthur was going through the book of Titus. Never forget it. You know, it's a big church. So when you walk in that room, it's, you know, it's like 2,500 people uh, every service. And I was not intimidated. It didn't freak me out. It was just me and that guy who was teaching. And it was like as if he was speaking to me the whole time. And I thought, you know, I don't care if there's a lot of people here. I need to be here. I just made the decision instantly. This is real quick also. Um, so he... Uh, Dean discipled me for a year, but then also he said, now you need to go to Bible study. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, on Friday night we get together about 7 o'clock, and then uh, we, we do some praying, and we sing some songs, and there's a guy that teaches, then we break out into application groups, and then we fellowship over food at the end. And I go, that sounds cultic. What are you talking about? It sounds weird. <laughs> and so I went to Bible study of my first one on a Friday night. I introduced myself to Aaron Shryock, who's one of our men now at the Master's Seminary. He, he does translation. And uh, I said, hey, my name's Tom Patton, but you're not going to have to remember that because I'm never coming back. This is before it ever happened. I'm such a weird person. And uh, I never stopped going for 10 years. I became the shepherd of the Bible study. And um, so my whole, my whole testimony has been one of literal grace, literal God's unmerited favor in my life. Didn't deserve anything, wasn't smart enough, wasn't... Uh, uh, holy, uh, had no, had n- 
actually all the things that could have gone wrong in my life were going wrong in my life, and it was by God's blessed mercy and love. As it says in Ephesians 2, he made me alive in Christ. He made me alive. I was dead. But now I'm here talking to you fine men, so that's a blessing. I met my wife at Grace Church too, uh, Lori. We have three wonderful young guys, um, Josiah, 17, Tommy, who's 15, and Jude, who's 13. And so um, I'm just, you know, I'm overjoyed. Um, I, could t- I could go on so much more with my story. I, I want to let you know, I, I teach actually at the seminary uh, the men to give testimonies. And I say, guys, you've got to have a five-minute version of your testimony, 15-minute 30 an hour, and some of these guys go, well, I was saved when I was five, and I go, well, you're not going to have that long of a testimony then, but it is, uh, it is a privilege to be here and just to share what I could with you. I want to open your Bible, if you will, with me to the last few verses of the book of Job, the last few verses of the book of Job, Job 42, verses 10 through 17, and if you would just listen as I read, Job 42, verse 10 through 17. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hepik. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days, and he lived happily ever after. You notice that's not in the text. (laughs) That's not in the Hebrew, but that should be, because those words really summons up for us what it is that this last section of Job is speaking of. These are words that most people would think of as a childhood fantasy or some kind of romance or larger-than-life situation. But happily ever after really should be there because Job lived the latter part of his life so different than the beginning. Now, if you've ever attempted to read the book of Job or study it even then, you'll find out that this unparalleled book really has so many treasures in it, so many uh, trials that he had gone through, and it really strikes a deep chord with you if you've gone through all of the tragedy that Job had gone through when you look at the sacrifice and the heartbreak and all of the uh, things that he had to experience in his heart. Then you come to the end and you see that the Lord restored Job. It really resonates in you. So happily ever after really is the only true way that you can understand this book, and I want to unpack that for you even this morning. Happily ever after can be, one writer said, the most beautiful and haunting words in the entire library of mankind. They are beautiful because they reflect the hope that everyone who has ever suffered by the hand of God hopes for, and yet they're haunting because also happily ever after can sometimes seem like a million miles away from your life, as if it would never, ever happen to you. 
I say that because some people have studied the book of Job and have come out with the conclusion that this ending is very disturbing to them, that they're very troubled by the fact that there would be a happy ending to the book of Job. Some would argue that Job's restoration is irrelevant because the story itself is untrue for the most part, untrue for those who suffer. They would say happily ever after cheapens it, makes it minimizes the message of whatever they believe the message of Job to be. Modern scholars will say that it must be ambiguity. That's what you want from a story. It should, it should not end happily ever after. It should end with some kind of strange uncertainty so that we can relate to it. One author writes, happiness you see is just an illusion of fate, a heavenly sleight of hand designed to make you believe in fairy tales, but there is no happily ever after, end quote. The world distrusts happy endings to stories because maybe they sense the nearness of their own unhappy ending. But regardless, the book of Job ends well. The book of Job, the tragedy of Job, ends well. And that's a very important concept for us to understand this morning. When all the wrongs are righted and the pain is subsided and the tears are wiped away, the triumph over your trials is in the book of Job. And that's not what maybe all of us had expected. And what's interesting about this last portion of this great story is Not so much how much it reveals to us about Job, but what it reveals to us about God. The God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is really the focus of this book. And I say that because I don't know if you're taking notes this morning, but the last eight verses here, you're going to see three manifestations of God's blessing on the the life of Job to demonstrate his unspeakable kindness. These are three areas of God's graciousness and his goodness to Job that makes this story a happily ever after story. This is God's triumph over Job's trials. After all the pain and all the loss and all the lack of empathy and all the lack of comfort, after the ridicule and the shame and all of the physical discomforts and pain that he had to go through, God himself rights the wrongs. And it's God himself who reverses everything to our tortured hero and makes sure that he wipes away the tears and brings us a happily ever after ending to a story that maybe we would have never imagined. And the the three manifestations you're going to see, again, if you're taking notes, are God restores Job's wealth in verses 10 and 12. God repairs Job's heart, and you're going to see that in verses 11 and 13. And God restores Job's legacy, and you see that in verses 14 through 15. So God restores Job's wealth, he repairs Job's heart, and he rewards Job's legacy. And each one of these this morning are going to exemplify to us a very important truth that I want you to notice, which is God's blessings to Job, we see a hint of what God's blessings would be for us as well in the days to come. But before I get there, I want to comment on some very erroneous implications that people have gotten out of this text. Um, They are seduced into believing that the book of Job could not believe in a happily ever after scenario because God never promises that here. Let me tell you, first of all, there are no principles in this last section as we're going to unfold them for you to follow. There's nothing that you are supposed to do after reading this, no steps to take. There's no guarantees that if you live like Job or think like Job that your suffering is going to end and all of a sudden you're going to have health, wealth, and prosperity. You can't get that in these last few verses. Even Job's own endurance, as the book of James speaks about, is not really the key to the triumphant ending of this story at all. Rather, what you have here are just actual historical facts of what happened in the life of Job 4,000 years ago. 
You have what exactly happened to this man and how God used this man and how God exemplified his own grace to this man. So you're not going to find any rules to follow this morning. I want to make sure you get that clearly. You can't find any guidelines here to get what you want. All you have here is God's blessed blessing on Job because of his only, his marvelous grace to do that. And yet some people are going to read these words for those people that might be thinking this way. And they, they glean out of this section of scripture a way to get what you want, a way to get prosperity, a way to get restoration. One writer that I read said, here in the book of Job, you have 12 principles that are essential for everyone who wants full restoration, who are experiencing life's troubles. These are 12 principles. In other words, there's 12 principles here that you can follow, that if you do these things as Job did them, that you'll get full restoration from God. And yet, tragically, men, there's no such principles here. There's nothing in the text that teaches that. If anything, the book of Job, especially this last section, implies that it's the intrinsic greatness and majesty of God himself alone that should be enough to sustain our faith and hope. Not just the, in the absence of blessings, but also in the presence of sufferings. In the presence of sufferings. So just so you know, there's not going to be any incentive here to... Uh, give you a pattern to follow or a pattern to copy or steps to go by, nothing to glean from here. I just want you to focus on how God blessed his suffering servant because it's the same God that we worship as well. So we're not going to try to figure out what Job did to make his life turn around because you won't find it here. I'm going to tell you that right in here, the goal this morning is just to understand how it was God himself in the perfection of his perfect timing to be able to choose to bless the most suffering of his servants in the Old Testament. So that being said, let me give you a little context this morning, because some of you haven't been in the book of Job lately. Maybe you've never actually read through the entire book of Job. So let me give you a little context, because you can't really appreciate the end of the story until you understand the beginning of the story. It begins with what you might consider once upon a time beginning in verse 1. It says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. Once upon a time, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and he was, listen to this, blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. It's a very, very vital thing that you understand from the very beginning that the story begins with a man named Job that we're to understand was unlike any other man. Job was unlike any other man on the face of the earth. He was a pure man. He was a holy man. Verse 3 of chapter 1 tells us, also, he was a wealthy man. He was the wealthiest of men. He was considered, it says in verse 3, the greatest men of the East. He was the greatest man of his day. He was upright, respected, famous. He was a man who loved God, trusted God, walked with God. He was also a family man. It tells us in the text, a man with seven sons and three daughters. These are not the three daughters and seven sons he's referring to at the end of the book. In the beginning... He had a daily practice, not just to pray for his children like I do and like you do, like most people would, but he would regularly get up and offer burnt offerings to every child in his family just in case they had sinned against God, just in case they had had a thought in their heart against God. What we have here is an incredible man. What we have here is a wonderful father, respected family man, respected in the community, hailed by his servants as the greatest man in the generation of men in which he lived. And then suddenly, in the book, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. And it catapults us into the throne room of heaven, where we come face to face with something that is the most 
stunning picture in all of the Old Testament for sure. There in heaven are the sons of God, these heavenly beings presenting themselves before the Lord of Lords when suddenly and unexpectedly comes someone that the Hebrew calls the Satan, the Satan, the accuser of old, standing right before the Ancient of Days. This is a very, or can be, somewhat jarring picture in your mind because most people don't think of Satan standing before God. Most people think of Satan usually as the ruler of hell or the king over the lake of fire, but the the truth is, at this very minute, Satan is not in hell. Uh, Satan is not reigning over uh, the, as the lord of the inferno, as the medieval poets and artists have depicted him. Now, Satan spends the majority of his time, even in our day, as he did in Job's day, roaming about the earth like a lion, looking for those he can devour, and then accusing the brother in the throne room of God, accusing the brethren. One day, Revelation 12 tells us that he will be blocked out permanently from heaven. And now he appears, however, as he does in Job 1, standing before the Lord. And I want you to notice, if you go back to chapter 1, you want to notice something that it is God himself, when he speaks to Job, it's God himself who says in verse 8, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. This is the second time that comment has been made about Job himself in the book. And it's more important because this time it's not just the narrator's uh, job to describe Job. God himself describes Job as a righteous man. The Lord's going to echo that same sentiment later in chapter 2. He uses identical language to make it known that we understand whatever's going to happen to Job, whatever happens in the rest of this book for the next 40 chapters, is going to happen to him in spite of the fact that he was this great man. He was one of the greatest sufferers of the Old Testament, and whatever happens to him, happens to him in spite of his righteousness, in spite of his uprightness, in spite of his fearing God. It's going to be crushing him, but it's all in spite of his pristine faithfulness. I say that to you because it's very vital you understand that, because people lose track of that when they look at the book of Job. Satan understood it. Satan understood very perfectly that Job's uprightness had to be attacked, and so it infuriated Satan. And so I say that because Satan goes and goes to uh, God when God is bragging about his servant, uh, Job, and Satan says this to the Lord in verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And so from the very beginning, Satan says, Job only loves you, God, because you bless him. God, Job only loves you because you give him good things. But I guarantee you, if you take away from Job everything he has, he will curse you to your face. And so from the very beginning, chapter 2, the Lord of heaven and earth allows Satan to empower two separate bands of terrorists to slay his servants, to steal his livestock, annihilating his entire fortune in one fell swoop, right before he commands a fury of terrible wind to collapse the home where each of his children were dining and they are crushed to death. In the blink of an eye, the hedge was removed and Job's life changed forever. 
There's no explanation. There's no warning. It's just one minute, you have it, and the next minute, it's gone. And then, as if that wasn't enough, Satan is given permission to allow a form of skin cancer to consume Job's flesh with boils and agony, a disease that's so horrible that even Job's wife says, curse God and die. Be over with it. And yet, beyond anything we could ever expect, Job 2, verse 10, it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In losing all of his fortune, all of his reputation, losing his everything, even his own physical ability to be healthy, Job did not sin with his lips. And then, if you know the story, came the friends. The three friends who came to comfort him and to help him. And they come from afar and they start to weep with him, which is the most wise thing they ever did. And they couldn't even speak. When they saw him, he was so, such in agony and the situations had reversed so dramatically that they couldn't even speak. And so all they did for the majority of the time was just to weep for one, for one whole week. And then they began to attack him. And then they begin to criticize him and tell him he needs to repent for the sin that they believe he must have committed for these atrocities to happen to him. And that really is a key to the book, if you're following with me. Job did nothing to bring on what happened to him in his life. All of the tragedies were not as a result of what Job did, but everybody in his day believed that. Everybody believed he was guilty of something. He had to be guilty of something. Every one of his friends, his neighbors, his distant family, everybody believed what theologians call the principle of retribution. The principle of retribution. That means they believe that evil always comes upon you when you commit evil, and good always comes upon you when you do good. They believed in the principle of retribution as if it was a fixed law in the universe that could never vary, and it is true each and every circumstance. If you're sick, then you had to have been doing something that was sinful. If you become blind or you have cancer, then you, it's a result of some secret sin in your life, something that you're hiding. If your child dies or your business fails or something like that, your marriage goes south, then you are just reaping the, the, the tragedy upon yourself for what you have done. It is a fixed, universal, unbreakable law. And yet we know, the Bible says in the book of James chapter 5, that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. In other words, sometimes there is a sickness as a result of sin, and sometimes not. It was our Lord Jesus himself who told his disciples that the man who was born blind in John chapter 9 was born that way not because of sin, not because of his parents' sin or his own sin, but that the works of God might be manifested in him. He was actually born blind so that Christ could demonstrate his deity by healing him. So there's no hard and fast rule in the universe, if you're listening and understanding, that when trials come, it's because of sin. Though that could be true, and sometimes that is true. But the principle of retribution fails to take into consideration that God moves according to his own sovereign purposes in life, not according to some law that exists mechanically outside of God. This is clearly the message of Job. This is clearly the message of Job. The book of Job says that there once was a man who was righteous and upright, turning away from evil, and yet his entire business failed. All his children died. His health was taken away from him by God's perfect and sovereign allowance for undisclosed purposes. 
Now remember, after me saying that, Job was not a sinless man. He wasn't a sinless man. Only Jesus Christ can claim that distinction. Job actually wrestles with God the entirety of this story. He's very brazen with God. He demands a lot of things from God. And as the story unfolds, you you see that he clings to his innocence so much so that the sin that he does commit is after the atrocities, not before. The story is clear. Though Job was wrong to find fault with God, he was not responsible for bringing the massive trials upon himself. And then, 40 chapters later, we come to the text that I just read to you earlier. Now, out of nowhere, knowing that God restores Job. So let's look at this as we go through now. Let's begin with the first manifestation of God's blessing to Job. Number one, God restores Job's fortunes. God restores Job's fortunes. And we see that in verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Now, as you come to verse 10, there seems to be, if you notice, a very clear connection between the restoration of Job's fortunes and the prayer that he prayed for his friends. And again, it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Therefore, it's important that we ask ourselves a question, what's the connection? What's the connection? Is there some kind of health, wealth, theology here in these verses that ties prayer to prosperity? What else could it be? Is this the secret of Job's restoration? Once he prayed for his friends, then God restored automatically his fortune too. Is that what's going on here? How are we to understand this? Again, context is important in every situation. Just before this chapter, God finally decides after chapters of not speaking, deafening silence, to appear to Job. He appears to him in a massive whirlwind, what's known to be the longest speech that God ever speaks in the entire Bible. And he does so with such an indisputable demonstration of great and awesome righteousness that by the end of it, God finally goes before Job and Job finally repents of his sin. And God immediately turns his attention after Job repents to his three friends who were there and he condemns them for not speaking to God the words of repentance that Job does. I'll read that to you real quickly. In Job 42 verse 8 it says, Now therefore take for yourselves, speaking to the friends, seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So God commands them, the three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, to go to Job and so that Job might pray for them. This is the prayer that verse 10 is referring to. So Job is restored spiritually to God once he repented for his fault finding, but Job was restored materially, emotionally, and physically once he prayed for his friends. Again, how are we to understand this connection? There is without a doubt... Some kind of relationship here in verse 10 between Job's prayer for his friends and his restoration for his fortunes. But the question is, does this verse teach that if we pray to God on behalf of others, then God brings to us health, wealth, and prosperity? It's a very, very important question. Take Vanitha Rindel Reisner. She's a woman who had undergone 21 surgeries by the age of 13, spent years in the hospital, suffered verbal and physical bullying from schoolmates, had multiple miscarriages as a young wife, suffered the death of a child, devastating progressive disease that forced her into a wheelchair, 
feels ongoing pain, personal abandonment because of an unwanted divorce. Vanita had begged God many, many times for grace that he would deliver her and yet to no avail. She had been personally ushered back to the back of a healing service after being publicly chastised for the, having the assumption that if you're not healed, it's your fault because God's will is for everyone to be healed. Always, the faithful will never suffer. That's what she was told. Years later, she writes this. A colleague years ago mentioned what he had learned from Job. I was surprised to hear that his study had yielded markedly different conclusion than mine. In his words, quote, Job got everything back and more for his suffering. He was blessed with more children and more money than he ever had before. That's what the story shows us. Doing the right thing always brings blessing and prosperity. That God's goal for us in this life is perfect health, total happiness, and financial gain. In this life. We simply need to name what we want, live the right way, and then claim our victory. That's what living for God looks like, end quote. And yet there's Venetha, who remains in a wheelchair to this very day. Is that the message of Job? Is that what Job is teaching? There's no indication in God's words to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that Job would receive either physical blessing or material blessing for praying. There's no indication in the text that God's commands that, God, that Job would benefit in any way from his intercession. There was never any indication that Job even prayed for restoration or that his prayers served any other function than just, listen to this, his willingness to humble himself to pray for those people who had horribly wronged him, who had spoken against him during his time of suffering, because he was, had a tender-heartedness that was created in him through repentance to God, and therefore he prayed for his friends. Job didn't pray for his friends' spiritual restoration, thinking, if I pray for them, then God will restore my physical and financial restoration. He prayed for his friends' restoration because he was compelled to do so after being humbled by God and worshiping him. Job prayed for his three friends because he had become so utterly laid low by his own confession of sin an acknowledgement of God's utter sovereignty in his life that to do otherwise would have been unthinkable. So the idea being expressed in verse 10, listen, is not one of cause and effect. It's not one of cause and effect. It doesn't say that because you prayed, I restored. But rather, verse 10 says, while he was praying. Not when he had prayed, as our translation says, but truthfully it says, Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job. In the Hebrew, it says, while he was praying. While he was praying. In other words, God chose to restore Job's health to him even before he had finished his prayer. Even before he had done some kind of formalistic rite of passage. So God isn't waiting, gentlemen, for you to dot the I's and cross the T's before he blesses. God blesses because he wants to because of his own unaffected, uncoerced grace and mercy. This isn't a delayed fulfillment of the principle of retribution. This isn't a long overdue gift of God for all that he had stolen from Job, as some people have sadly concluded, as if God had a compulsion. No, God here is choosing to restore to Job twice what he had lost just because of his own beautiful desire to bless his servant out of his own unequaled, gracious character to demonstrate his favor upon Job after all that he had done. It wasn't a result of manipulation. It wasn't a result of any kind of extortion. It was because God wants to bless. You remember King Solomon. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Kings uh, chapter 3, we have a very similar situation in 1 Kings where God blesses Solomon after he prays. And it's a very interesting parallel. Let me just kind of read it to you quickly. 
because Solomon goes before God and prays for wisdom to be able to rule the people that God had given him. And God says this in 1 Kings 3.11, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life or asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so there has been no one like you or before you, nor shall one be arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all of your days. So once Solomon prayed like Job prayed to be a blessing to others, God chose to exercise his own independent grace to bless both men with fortune, even though they never asked for it. This is very important for us. It's very, very important for us because believing the opposite can be very scary and can lead you into dire circumstances. I prayed, you owe. I I prayed, I did what was asked for me, you fix what's wrong in me. But that's not in the book of Job. That's not here. Some people are tempted to think that when they first read these words, that Job was one day afflicted and then the next day he was healed. But let me tell you this. The, the whole, there's a lot of white spaces here. For example, we don't know how or when Job was ever recovering from his illness. In fact, we're not even sure if the skin disease was cured overnight or the next day or the next year. Because the text doesn't even mention the restoration of his health at all. Even though we assume he was healed because he went on to live for so many more days, 140 years. But if there was a healing, which we believe there was then there would have to be some, think about it, rehabilitation. There would have to be physical therapy. There would have to be the repairing of the scars. There would have to be a getting used to what real life was like again. There's no promise of physical restoration here in Job. There's no promise of physical restoration either, but there's just a beautiful picture of God's eagerness to restore the child who has come to his senses, who has turned to God for forgiveness, who cries out to his heavenly Father. And might I add, verse 12, when God restored to Job twice the sheep, twice the camels, twice the oxen and donkeys that he had in chapter 1, that's also more than just a restoration of Job's finances. That's a restoration of his honor as well. I say that because once with the possessions he had, Job was considered the greatest man, as I said, in the east because his prosperity was a sign to the people in that day that God's hand was upon him. So God would restore that out of his complete and utter grace. He restores back to Job much more than just material wealth. He restores back to Job a sense of honor as well, which gives us the second manifestation. So that was the first manifestation. Not only do we see God restore Job's wealth, but number two, if you're taking notes, God repaired Job's heart. And we see this in verse 11 and also read verse 13. Verse 11, then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before him came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him and each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And we see in verse 13, and he had seven sons and three daughters. You know, as I was originally preparing this message, a lady came up to me and asked, what are you going to preach on next Sunday? And I said, Job 42, uh, and I listened, uh, I spoke to her, verse 11. And when I said this one verse, and then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him came before him and they ate bread with his house and they consoled him and comforted him, she started, she started just to cry right in front of me. Because I didn't even have to explain the verses. She understood that kind of restoration that had 
been given Job because when you have been abandoned, when you have had your family turn away from you and you've had everyone that once you thought loved you betray you and then they come and come to you and give you kisses and restoration and hold you, that's probably one of the manifestations of the deepest desire of all of our hearts. It was the English writer J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote Lord of the Rings and famously other books as well. He came up with a word. He coined a term called eucatastrophe. Uh, eucatastrophe was a word that Tolkien actually made by taking the Greek uh, word "you," which was good, with the Greek word which means destruction or catastrophe. And eucatastrophe then becomes a term that he invented that refers to the sudden turn of events in a story which ensures that the protagonist doesn't meet with some kind of terrible doom. The word refers to, in, in Tolkien's words, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with the joy that brings tears. This is what we have before us here. We cry tears for Job. If you have read the entire book and come to the end, we cry tears for Job because we cry tears for ourselves because we see the possibility that God can make all things right again. That God can can make every tear one day, as the book of Revelation tells us, to be wiped away. And we see his family and his friends' decision to come to him and to eat bread with him, which of course is a sign of intimacy, as we have done this morning. Breaking bread with each other is a sign of closeness and love. When they come to him and they have their arms around him and they lean their head on his shoulder, that's a sign of hope. And that's a sign of hope for us as well. When you read back in chapter 19 of the book of Job, this makes it more clear why this is such a vivid contrast. In verse 13, listen to this. This is Job speaking. He's speaking to the friends. He says, he, meaning God, has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up, and they speak against me. You remember, at one time, Job was a man who had the lord of the estate. He was the most uh, famous man. He had uh, maids and servants and a wife and relatives and friends. Everybody loved him. Everybody esteemed him. Everybody looked up to him. But verse 14 of that same chapter says he was a forgotten man. He had become forgotten. And yet each one here in verse 11, each one of his family, those who had known him, create the eucatastrophe of his life, this great turning of events that moves us to tears, that sudden happy moment that everything is made right. Being abandoned by your friends, even fellow believers, can be one of the most tragic things that ever happened. Even the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 4, 16, all, he says, all at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Mark 14, 50, we read even our Lord Jesus Christ says that he was deserted by his own. All, they all left him and fled. There's a time in life, and it is coming. They say you're either about to come into a trial, in a trial, or coming out of a trial in life. You're about to either come into a trial, in a trial, or coming out of a trial. There will be a time when life's hardships, many people are going to be tempted to desert the one who is suffering. When you are suffering, people don't want to be around you. People think that when you're suffering that you have sometimes gotten God's curse upon you. 
and they, they might love you and care for you, but they see that infliction upon you, and they are afraid, and they don't come around. It's not uncommon for people who suffer to suffer alone. But when God changes hearts, and then he changes souls, and he removes barriers, and he unites hands, this restoration of God went much further than just material fortune. The restoration of God descended down into the consciences of the men and women who had been compelled to turn away from Job and allow them to be free to come to him in their hearts and to hold him and to love him once again. This is one of the most beautiful aspects of the entire story. The restoration of Job's heart through the comforting of his friends. Here in the middle of verse 11 even, we have, it says, they did that because they recognized, look in the middle of verse 11, all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. They recognized all the adversities that the Lord had brought upon him. You know, Satan is never mentioned in this book after chapter 2. Satan is never mentioned again. God never brings up the issue of Satan to Job or to his friends, the entire story. Job is never given, listen to this, an explanation of what happened to him through the prism of demonic affliction. He's never shown a glimpse into the heavenly conversation in the prologue of the book. He's only allowed to understand what his friends understood. And that is, namely, whatever happens to us, whatever doesn't happen to us, whatever passes through the doorways of our lives is placed there day after day after day, is never to be understood in any way other than it is God, the Lord over all, who has brought these things to pass in our lives. It is always by the hand of God. There is no resentment. There's no us against him. It's just a deeply moving sense that God is God and his ways are mysterious. And even though we can never fully explain the ways of the Lord, we can trust that his decisions are right and that we can accept his discipline and we can comfort one another while we're still praising him as well. And then at the very end of verse 11, it says that each one of his brothers and sisters, and all they had known him, which were many, many people, each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. And that's very helpful for us because if these many, many people gave him a ring and money, they comforted him not just with their compassion, but also with currency. They loved him not just with words, but in action. This was a very personal, intimate, individual way of giving wealth back for the purposes of getting their brother back on his feet again, to try to help him to, to be restored. And it's a very incredible example of their abiding love for him. And listen, none of this was expected. N- not one piece of this was expected in Job's life. None of this was prayed for. They, even as they approached him after all this time, he was considered still a leper to most people. The fact that they would even come to him. He was on, outside of the city on a dung hill, scraping his boils off with pottery. Job never once dreamed that those who had abandoned him one day would knock on his door and extend a hand or give him a gift, ever. But God, being rich in mercy and love, moved people to go to his servant so that Job might be lifted up. We now come to the third manifestation of God's blessing. Not only did God restore Job's wealth and repair Job's heart, but now we see, lastly, God also rewarded Job's legacy, rewarded Job's legacy. And that begins in verse 12 through 17. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke and oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hepic 
And all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. Now, it's important as we end to remember that the life of Job is very important, and I think people skip over this. There isn't any instant recovery in this book. Job has no instant recovery, either physically or materially. There's no uh, creating wealth out of nothing. Uh, There isn't any one day he was penniless and then the next day there's fortune. That's not what we see, at least in the book. In fact, the implication of the text here is that it was the gold rings and the gifts that were given to him, most likely that were used by him to reinvest in his life, to raise up what he had had before. That even though God blessed Job, where it was twice what he ever had, still Job had to put his hand to the plow He still had to work. He still had to gain back for himself the wealth he had lost. Think about it. The twofold gaining of the sheep and the camels and the ox and the donkeys just didn't happen uh, now because Job had all this newfound wealth given to him. Because his family had given him this money, now he can just march right down to the local animal farm and pick out a thousand sheep here and a thousand camels there. It doesn't work like that. We have such a kind of Western mindset. There wasn't some kind of instant accumulation of, of possessions miraculously out of nowhere. There had to be moment by moment, he had to have by God's enablement the ability to go and to work. Look at verse 13. Another part of this emotional healing of Job, the gift of Job giving him 10 more children. That doesn't happen in a vacuum either, does it? 10 children, poof, there they are. It'd be great if it happened that way, ask your wife. But uh, uh, that means that even though God would bless the heart with good things, there would still be a need for Job and his wife, listen to this, to be restored. You can't just have children out of nowhere. It doesn't even mention here the fact that he was granted more children implying anything else, but there had to be healing between he and his wife. In the beginning of the story, the last words we ever hear of Job's wife, the only time she ever speaks was a plea for him to curse God and die. So you have to now forgive, and you you have to remember after you've buried your 10 other children, and your flesh is like fire, and you're going through a disease and having people blame you, thinking that it's some sin that you've committed against God, For there to be now 10 more children brought upon you means that there would have to be between you and your wife an intimacy again. And for there to be intimacy, there would have to be healing and forgiveness. And there have to be, for healing and forgiveness, you'd have to be uh, full of prayer and long conversations and tears and more tears. This all happened as a process. And on top of that, Job would still need to see the birth of 10 separate children after the many different years, and then he would be raising those children and educating those children, pointing those children to God. There would be memories of the children who had died and the sacrifices that had been made for them, and now the new children would have to be taught about the brothers and the sisters who had been lost and the lessons that Job had learned from God, how he had been rewarded, and now been given even a greater heritage. And yet there would be restoration for Job, but it was not an overnight miracle. Listen to this. It was a 140-year miracle, 140 years of going on and on with restoration. You see, critics have said that this happily ever after kind of inclusion of the seven sons and the three daughters is an appalling uh, example of kind of Pollyanna uh, mindset, a Pollyanna kind of inappropriateness, because these 10 new children could never make up for the first 10 that were killed. So why on earth would God think 
that such a gift of 10 new children would fix what was broken. But what they miss, I think, seriously, those who make such a knee-jerk reaction, is the utter beauty that this scene evokes for a man like Job who had suffered so much. Years ago, I attended a funeral for a little two-year-old boy. His name was Oaks Muxlow. He is the grandson of Dave Muxlow, who was an elder at Grace Community Church. And it was a very tragic story. Little Oaks had drowned in a bathtub accidentally while his parents were in the other room, both of his parents being Christians. Uh, And they lost Little Oaks. They walked in the room, and he was uh, face down in the bathtub and had drowned. And there were no words for their depth of loss. There was absolutely no words for the pain that those parents felt. He was their entire world. And they were left with an unfillable hole in their heart. That was until the very next year, God blessed the Muxlow family with twins, twin boys, two adorable little blessings that filled that family with such joy like they had never known before. Like little oaks would never, ever be forgotten. But God's gift of twins to that hurting family would never be forgotten either. Verse 14 tells us that Job, not his wife, Job named his daughters, which was not the custom in ancient times, just so you know, And yet Job had no problem breaking that tradition. And the names themselves are so beautiful to understand. Uh, Jemima doesn't mean syrup, by the way. Uh, It means uh, turtle dove. It means turtle dove. Uh, Kazia speaks of cinnamon. And uh, Karen Hepic means cosmetic box, which would refer to the container that would hold black powder for women's eyes. So three daughters filling each one of his senses with joy. A turtle dove to hear, cinnamon to taste, and cosmetics to see. It was like life returned to Job. And on top of that, verse 15 tells us that they were beautiful, the most beautiful women in the land. Daughters so beautiful, Job would never have to worry that they would marry because their physical charm would guarantee that they would be noticed by gentlemen callers. And on top of that, Job gave his daughters an inheritance, which was never done in that day if there were sons in the family. But Job, you see, was so filled with the sense of God's grace, and he had been so lavished with God's riches upon him that he gave not only to his sons an inheritance, but also the daughters as well. So God God had just blessed him and rewarded him with such a great legacy in his new family that Job returned that reward to those daughters he loved. In fact, Job's legacy spanned way beyond just this new flock he'd given him because verse 16 tells us that Job saw in the remaining 140 years of his life his sons and his grandsons, four generations passed before him. So his own generation, his first children's generation, his present children's generation, and then the grandson's generations. Four generations of family all paraded by this dear man the day he died. Surely Psalm 28 describes Job when it speaks of just the heart and man, the mind of a man who has been faithful for so many years and still remains faithful even into his old age. Psalm 128 says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. When you shall eat of his fruit of, the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall be the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. See, guys, happily ever after 
is not some cheap, superficial ending to a story, but is a deeply contemplated conclusion to the life of one who had suffered so much. The end of Job is the eucatastrophe of Job, that sudden happy turn in the story where pierces you with joy and brings you to tears. We don't have any evidence, ultimately, that Job had a memorial service, but I'm sure he did. People must have come from all over the land to pay respects to the patriarch of patriarchs. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, almost likely had died by that time. God had sustained Job another 140 years after them. But it's possible that his children were there. And it's possible that his daughters were there with their husbands and grandchildren, everyone standing there at his memorial. And in my sanctified imagination, I think of after they maybe sang some ancient hymns to the Lord, after they had bid their last goodbyes, you could only imagine that as they closed the entrance to his tomb, that perhaps his children placed a plaque above it, a plaque with some words etched into them for all to read. Once upon a time, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And the Lord brought many adversities upon him, and yet he lived happily ever after. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time with these men. Thank you for the fact that um, none of us here are worthy of any restoration. We're not worthy of any benefit that we even see here in the book of Job, though certainly none of us have suffered exactly what he has suffered. But we have suffered, Lord, and we do suffer even in this moment. There are men here uh, who are dealing with uh, all kinds of physical ailments. There are men here who have issues in their marriage. There are men here who have personal issues in their own heart, enslavements that they have, all kinds of reasons. And I know that because sin is common to all of us. There is no sin that is not common to man. And yet we know that you are faithful. You will provide a way of escape for all who trust in you. And one of these escapes, Lord, is just understanding the truth of who you are, the graciousness of who you are. And the way that you acted with Job is the same way that you act with all of your servants in that you give us what we don't deserve. And we thank you for that, Lord. Give us an opportunity today to even talk about that amongst each other, uh, to think upon these things and to be thankful for the God that you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.